Have you heard? Mumbrella's Audio Land is happening next Thursday. Audio experts from Shameless Media, Spotify, Nova Entertainment, Fear and Greed, Weber Shandwick, and more will take the stage to explore all things audio from podcast monetization to audio advertising campaigns. It is not to be missed. Secure a last minute ticket at mumbrella.com.au forward slash audio land. A quick look at Fox Corp and Dominion Voting Systems settlement for US $787.5 million before Chris Savage joins the podcast to discuss the importance of agencies getting their own sales pitch right. After that, we finish with a conversation between myself and Foxtel Media's Mark Frain on the company's binge ad tier launch to date, its path to becoming a streaming-only company, and how content remains key to a growing subscriber base. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin, and joining me for the news chat today is reporter and Mumbrella Cast producer, Kalila Welch. Hey, K-Dog. Hey, Cal. Nice to be back on the podcast. It is good to be back on the podcast. And again, we're going uh, just two of us this week after Damo and my uh, conversation last week. So um, we don't actually have a lot to discuss today because we, we've actually done most of it, haven't we? We uh, spoke to, to Chris, who's out in Singapore yesterday, which was a great mm, Yeah, chat, that was um, really nice to hear a bit more about his insights on the topic of agency positioning, which um, I published that story on yesterday. So things to look forward to further down the podcast and uh chris of course is is very enthusiastic with uh, everything he delivers so a couple of good guests and interviews for you today but right now uh we're just going to kick things off with a story which uh, i guess it's been developing over recent weeks but um sort of hit a bit of a crescendo overnight because fox and dominion voting systems reached a settlement mere minutes before the historic trial was set to proceed in Delaware in the US today, or uh, that would have been Tuesday in America. The pair settled for $787.5 million US dollars, which translates to $1.17 billion Australian, which approximates to around half of what Dominion was pursuing initially after Fox admitted to airing lies about the voting machine company's role in an alleged stolen election in America in 2020. Dominion's CEO, John Poulos, said, Fox has admitted to telling lies about Dominion that caused enormous damage to my company, our employees, and the customers that we serve. Nothing can ever make up for that. It was initially thought that... uh, while the, the the Fox was pushing yesterday um, before the trial was delayed by one day for a settlement that Dominion was very keen on actually getting this to the trial stage. Uh, of course, that changed now. Interestingly, while Fox released a statement which it, it stood by its journalism, there was no such apology to Dominion publicly, and unsurprisingly, no mention of the case on Fox News' website after I checked uh, a couple of minutes before we jumped on here, Galila. Um Just a quick uh, recap of the statement from Fox. It read, We acknowledge the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. The settlement reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards. So uh, interesting statements to come out of that, despite 
everything that we've seen over the last few weeks. Yeah, it is really um, interesting how this case has evolved, I guess. But, Carl, what's the significance of the trial being called off, aside, of course, um, from the dollar figure? I I think um, the main part is largely that Fox is now or has been able to avoid having some of its most senior or public-facing and private-facing figures, including hosts Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Janine Pirro, as well as the likes of, of course, of Rupert Murdoch and Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott appear appear in front of the jury for cross-examining. Murdoch, now 92, uh, and by all accounts, very frail. Uh, If you'll have read the fantastic expose in Vanity Fair last week, you would have gotten a bit of an insight just into how troubled, uh, I guess, the last few years have been for for Murdoch Sr., um, sustaining a whole bunch of injuries, really sick with COVID, um, spending quite a bit of time in hospital. So I think even vis- visually or optically, it could have been uh, a little bit troublesome for for the company, of course, after um, all the revelations that have been exposed already in the documents subpoenaed by um, Dominion, which have been a, a pretty extraordinary to say the least. Also essentially giving evidence that the high ups at Fox knew that the, uh, the 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 stolen election lie was essentially a quack theory, um, but allowed it to be to be pushed on air um, in order to wrestle ratings from Troy, uh, loyal Trump Fox viewers. So I, I guess it's a big big case of saving face while also preventing any any further public reputational uh, damage. Really, Cal, you've been keeping a close watch on the uh, Lachlan Murdoch defamation suit against Crikey that's currently playing out in Australia. What are the local implications for um, this settlement that's occurred overnight? Aside from, I guess, the obvious point that Lachlan Murdoch is uh, executive chairman and CEO of Fox Corp, um, he is, uh, as, a, as a quick reminder, br- has brought forward a defamation suit against private media in Crikey in Australia. And uh, as recent as last week, um, Crikey have brought forward or attempted to use evidence brought forward by Dominion in this case in particular to bolster its own defence. Um, a key point, of course, also centres around the fact that Murdoch's legal team has repeatedly claimed that Crikey are using um, the defamation case locally uh, as a way to sort of drive subscriptions and and revenue here in Australia, which quite interestingly uh, sort of in a sense mirrors the case in the US where evidence showed that um, I guess some of these lies were allowed to to go to air um, in order to potentially pump up the ratings a little bit or stop the bleeding of ratings after Fox essentially called the election for Joe Biden, um, much to the the dismay of, of many of their their readers. Um, still yet to be seen whether that evidence will be allowed to be used in the case locally, but it, it's not over for Fox over in the US um, as it does face another case from another um, voting systems company, Smartmatic, this time uh, over $2.7 billion US dollars over similar claims. So... Story's not finished and uh, plenty to go locally as well. Coming up in the next part, I did say we are kicking things off when we start on this one, but please excuse that as we recorded it, uh, well, the next section with Chris yesterday according to accommodating schedules. But that chat is coming up after the break. Okay, kicking things off in our first section, welcoming Chris Savage to the podcast. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Very well. How are you guys? 
doing fantastically. Yeah, Thanks, Chris. Good to hear. Um, so, Chris, you have many feathers in your hat, um, though you largely define yourself, uh, I, I think, online as a business, gro business growth energizer. That encompasses everything from comms and strategic advice and consulting. And you're also actively involved with a number of leading independent agencies across our own industry here. Um, you spoke with Kalila for a piece we published this morning on our site regarding agencies advertising themselves, their services, and their own purpose within this industry. To start you off with a with a curly one, Chris, how, how do you brand yourself? Give us the, the quick pitch on the Savage Company and then I guess how you would rate your own uh, your own description for effectiveness okay well look i brand myself as someone who energizes growth so if i had a bumper sticker for my business it would be the savage company growth energizers and i choose that as my positioning because that's the feedback i've got from the people i work with they say you know we don't know what it is about what you bring, but ultimately we ended up doing more than we expected. We became more ambitious. We believed more and we drove the business harder. So I'm a growth energizer. I energize brands, businesses, revenue, profits, reputation, differentiation, leadership teams, leaders. That's what I do. And it works for me because the dance card is full. I'm learning an enormous amount and having an absolute blast. But it is a good example of where positioning and the right positioning really resonates with your target customer. If it's something that they are thinking about, if it's something that they're having meetings at night about, that they're sweating about growth and how to energize growth, then that positioning simply connects and makes him think, I better take a closer look at this company and what they can bring to me. So I guess that's a, a little bit from Chris's side. And some of that was what um, sort of echoing uh, what Chris told you, Kalila, in, in that piece this morning. But for those that haven't read to the, uh, headed to the website and where I would also suggest uh, you head in the direction of to read that piece. Aside from Chris, you spoke with Dan Monheit from Hard Hat. VML Wineyards, Alison Tilling, and Vuki Vujasinovic from Sling and Stone. What's the consensus, uh, I guess, from 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 them on agencies branding themselves, Khalil? And I guess the the impetus for that piece. Yeah, so I think there's definitely a conversation to be had about there, and you know, this this was perspective brought by all people that I spoke to for the story. Um, but there is a bit of a gap between the service or the branding service that agencies are offering for their clients and then the branding that they're embodying themselves in terms of, you know, agencies kind of at this time having a little bit of a reputation for or a tendency to have vague or sometimes non-existent positionings in market. Um, ironic given that obviously they exist to make sure that their clients don't do that. So two key issues, I guess, emerged from my conversations for this story. Um, and, and those were first those agencies that have very broad, you know, meaningless or even non-existent positioning. So they're not really communicating very much to prospective clients. And then on the other hand, there are, you know, a few that have quite tight and, and you know, niched down, I guess, positionings, but um, as time goes on, they kind of gradually drift away from those positionings as they bring in clients or start to do work that don't necessarily align with that positioning they've 
created at the start, um, which can obviously dilute the kind of value, I guess, of having a positioning in the first place. Um, but, but what came up was that um, in both of those cases, I guess the primary fear or the primary motivator from the side of agencies was that they have this concern that they're um, going to be, you know, working in too narrow of a lane where they're risking turning away work or not getting the right amount of work um, or whatever it is. And um, that's something that people had varied opinions on in terms of whether that is a valid uh, excuse or a valid, uh, I guess, way of approaching things. Um, and Alison um, from BMOYNR did raise that it was a bit of a catch-22 for agencies, particularly those larger agencies um, in terms of their commercial realities. And, you know, you can imagine it would be um, a difficult conversation to have at the holding co level when you're reporting to those national executives um, about, you know, the clients that you're going to be able to bring on. I find it interesting this sort of perspective that um, you know, as you mentioned there, as the agency gets older and older, they sort of broaden their scope. But it appears, you know, Chris, you mentioned uh, at, at the top there that you have narrowed that or kind of come to this conclusion of energizing growth for businesses based on feedback. Is that is that I guess should agencies be open to sort of testing and learning and then narrowing their approach or does it have to be you know we've got this from the get-go look i don't think that it's necessarily about narrowing the approach um, certainly some agencies will niche and will specialize in a couple of capability areas and you know if you're a social media specialist and that's your positioning and you go hard in that area then yes that's going to narrow you but if you look at my positioning for my little business it's about a growth accelerator right it's about energizing growth now that the market for that is as wide as you like but the positioning is about what i bring to my clients so there's no narrowing in that regard I think what you've what you've really got to focus on, and 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 I really loved Kalila's piece this morning, and 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 what Dan and Vuki and and Alison etc. were saying, because it is such a big issue. There's an explosion of agencies in the market, and I am just horrified by the lack of differentiation that many of them uh, hang their hats on in the in terms of the way that they position. And I've seen some. Um, uh, new independence launch in the past six months. And I just shake my head at the way they've positioned, them, positioned themselves. I sort of say, how can they think that that is a good idea or that the way they've positioned themselves is really going to tap into what their target clients are living and breathing and sweating about? So I think it is it, it is an issue that needs a lot of conversation, but it needs action. And for the agencies that are are operating now, you can change your positioning. So if you can have a look at the way you're positioned now, if it's not as sharp, as relevant as it can be, change it. A positioning mm -hmm. only has to last two or three years. You can you can keep evolving it and sharpening it and relaunch and do those things. So it's a, it's a really great conversation to be having. Yeah, and Chris, you um you ran STW Group for a pretty lengthy period of time here in Australia. Um. I guess two two parts of this. Did you ever I, I have to address that at one of your agencies and think, well, maybe from that position where you can kind of step back a little bit, think, well, you've got this great service, but you're really just not selling yourself properly. Or maybe was there a situation 
to be a little bit blunt with it, where you just thought, oh, well, that's just a load of bollocks. Look, I'm not sure I thought a lot about it. Firstly, I didn't run the group. I, I, I worked hand in glove with the chief executive, so I supported him in running the group at STW. But having said that, I didn't really think a lot about agency positioning uh, 10 years ago as much as I think about it today. I think the market, you know, when you're working for a big dominant player like STW or WPP, um, and you do have to compete very aggressively in the different areas of the market that you operate in, but you tend to think about different things. Working with independent agencies, it's so competitive. There are so many different agencies out there. The, the, the whole concept of positioning becomes a much bigger issue. When you are positioned correctly, you can win the battle before you actually even fight. And agencies need to be really single-minded about the one thing that will underpin their success. I remember the guy um, who runs uh, Publicis globally, uh, um, Artur. Arthur Sadoon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember when he just took over that role, he, we, 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 I had him on a video at a conference, and he talked about don't try to be the best at what you do. Rather, be the only one who does it. Now, there are agencies in the market, Dan Monheit from Hardhat and what he talked about this morning about behavior change. Others talk about behavior change, but no one is as deep in their expertise. And remember, expertise is the only way you can really differentiate from your competitors. There's no one as deep in behavior change as that business. So to me, that's that's perfect. The only ones who really do it. The second thing I want to say about positioning is um, it can be superficial. And what I mean by that, and stay, you know, let's just sort of let me finish my explanation, is that if you come up with a positioning for your business, so long as there is some validity for you having that positioning, claim it. Go out there boldly and tell the world about it. And over time, you will build more and more credential and capability and proof points to substantiate your positioning. So you don't, you know, done is better than perfect. You don't have to have all your ducks in the row before you claim a positioning. So long as there's a basis of real substance, claim it and then do more work in that area and you'll build up your business case over time but look for something that's rare if it's not you know if it's not rare it tends to be easy to do if it's easy to do there are lots and lots of people out there doing it find something that's not so easy to do that isn't as well um, optioned out there in the marketplace and try and focus on that you know i heard it said once that if what you do as an agency is complicated and not sexy that's where the money is. That's where the market opportunity is because there's simply fewer great competitors when it's a bit complicated and it's not sexy. There's a brilliant independent agency called Apparent. Phil Smith started that business 10, 15 years ago. And you know he was a direct marketing guy who then evolved into digital direct marketing. But actually, he was one of the early movers in CX. And it wasn't very sexy. And it was kind of complicated. And there weren't that many competitors when he was really building his business. And now he has one of the leading, most successful, largest independent agencies in the country because he offered something that was hard to find. So look for something rare. If it's complicated and not particularly sexy, that's where the opportunity is. Position 
for uh, in that space and your business will grow well. I guess one of the the tricky parts when you don't have a super, super, I guess, niche or focused part that you can kind of hone in on. Um, and we, we see this in the case, and Alison even mentioned it in in the piece. She she joined VML YNR around the time where uh, obviously those those two brands, YNR and VML, came together and they landed on We Create Connected Brands. Um, Alison said that she sort of learned to approach this as a, as a way of going about things rather than, um, I, I, I guess, some sort of mission statement. And we see it again with um, Essence and Mediacom coming together this year and they're now going um, to market as the, the breakthrough agency. Do you think sometimes there is a need for, you know, sort of happy medium? Definitely, definitely. Have something. Um, you know, so the breakthrough agency, you can create a story around that. You can create some IP around it. You can create some case studies of proven track record where you, you've achieved people, like it, it, you've achieved results that are meaningful for, for your clients. So, yeah, I think it, you, you don't have to be, you know, deeply specialized in a niche. That's not what I'm saying. Um, the hard hat positioning is about behavior change. Now, that's quite broad, right? But it's a specialized skill set to deliver a certain outcome, but they can deliver it for a wide range of clients. So, yeah, there is there is a happy medium. I mean, I, I wish I had more courage and I could start giving you examples of businesses, agencies that I think have done a really bad job. Uh, but there's I've learned over the years that there's no value in doing that. So I'll leave that for you to do. But there are, a number of, there are a number of businesses that have done a good job. And I think, uh, uh, you know, and there are. And I think Thinkabell, even though they came into the market when they launched, um, you know, what they were offering was sort of creative and media. And, but their approach, their language, their narrative, the way they talked about how they come up with solutions for clients was different. And what really brought it to life was their work, particularly in those early years, the work that they delivered, that they put out there, really brought to life their positioning. It was a combination of thinkers and tinkers, and it was, uh, uh, the, you know, work that was talked about, and it, it it really brought to life their unique perspective in the way they 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 approached briefs and and they delivered work, and so their positioning became real and tangible, and they built. What I mentioned in, in, in Kalila's article this morning, they built the most magical thing that every single agency wants, and that's the power. And the power, a concept that Blair Enns talks about on his podcasts, the power is about when the client's desire for you is greater than your desire for the client. And when you've got the power, everything changes in our business. Yeah. You can charge the right amount. You don't get haggled about um, uh, about price. You can pick and choose to a degree. You can be more selective about the sorts of clients that you work with. And, you know, agencies that have the power, you don't keep it forever. You have it for a period of time and then you lose it. And then if you're sharp and you're repositioning and you recalibrate, you can get it again for a period of time. Um, but a lot of that comes out of powerful positioning that you build proven case studies around. That's what gives you the power. But it's got to be rare. If it's not rare, if it's out there, it's commoditized. Look, I won't twist your arm on a bad one, but can you think of one that maybe you think was a really successful 
repositioning that an agency maybe has something that wasn't working for them and then came out with something and you went, oh, they've got it? Look, the one one that I do think about is is really a, a one that I only sort of stumbled upon recently, which was the positioning of Huge, uh, the the US agency. Yeah. Um, they recently launched, yeah. yeah, yeah. They recently launched in Australia. I don't know those guys, and I don't know that business, but I loved their positioning, and and they talked about creative growth accelerators. Now, what I liked about that is that I know that in every boardroom in the country, there are clients sweating, sweat popping off their brows, and they're thinking about how the hell can we get more creative to drive growth? Growth is all we care about. It's going to keep my job, hit my KPIs, you know, blah, blah, blah. But these these guys, huge, they say creative growth accelerators. Then they explain that they focus, they look at a client organization in through three lenses, three ways they look at a client to look for opportunities where creativity can bring accelerated growth. And then the third thing they say, and I thought this was kind of really cool, was that they 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 deliver their services through fixed priced products so that they will no doubt have a process where they look at a client, they come up with ideas on where they can accelerate growth, and then the client buys fixed price products to deliver it. So there's no discussion about hourly rates. There's no, it's like, you want this phase? It's a hundred grand. You want that phase? So I really thought, wow, that's an interesting positioning. It's different. It's intriguing. And I like that very much in terms of it. It certainly grabbed my attention. Khalil, anything uh, to add at the end there? You know what? I think Chris has covered it all. <laughs> well, Chris, we uh, appreciate you dialing in from Singapore uh, and 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 expanding on your thoughts from this morning's piece. Really appreciate it. No, it's a great pleasure. I'm here in Singapore at a meeting of a hundred independent agencies from around the world, and I have to say the 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 work that the Indies are doing in Australia is right at the cutting edge of the best work that's happening out in the market. All power to you. I know that the courage that's required to start and to build an indie, it's easy for guys like me in the peanut gallery to throw comments around about how you can position better, um, but you're doing a great job. Do think hard about the way you're positioned. Kalila's article was excellent, really good input from, from Dan and Vuki and Alison and others, and I encourage all agencies, think and never stop thinking about the way you're positioned. If you're positioned correctly, the battle's won before you even begin. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Coming up after the break, Foxtel Media's CEO, Mark Frayne. CEO of Foxtel Media, Mark Frayne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, mate. Great to be here. We are three weeks or so since Binge's ad launch, which... Uh, featured partners including Maccas, Suncorp, Mars, Snooze, Uber, Mitsubishi, and more. Uh, I guess top line, how's the, how's the launch gone so far? Can you, can you run us through any numbers, any feedback? What's that been like? Yeah, I mean, it's gone, it's gone very well would be the opening headline. We've been, um, as you'd imagine, pretty um, careful and I would say cautious on the rollout. So it's been a a gradual rollout of um, different devices um, over the last kind of 
um, couple of weeks um, from iOS and getting into Android and progressively building the audience, just making sure that we uh, ensure that the customer experience remains um, as premium as it was without ads. Uh, and secondly, making sure that delivery for our advertising partners is there. And progressively, um, we're up to around about 75 or 80% of the audience um, across um, the binge um, lower bases now receiving advertising. Um, so it, it, it's live, it's working. Um, recent stats are on the weekend. Um, we were we over-delivered on the numbers we were forecasting. So even running at 75 or 85% of the, the audience potential, that's a good sign. And can you run us through, I guess, first of all, um, the thinking initially behind the model that you approached? Obviously, this came slightly after the the Netflix launch, which, of course, has been uh, widely reported on. But I guess just for those that haven't heard, how did you settle on, I guess, deciding four minutes per hour, one ad load per hour, the introducing it, the basic, the basic model, and then from then... Um, I guess approaching those negotiations. Yeah, I think from from the the ad load and the frequency capping to start with. I mean, we've been and we still are um, ongoing students of what's going on globally. Um, probably over two years ago now, we took on the representation of um, Tubi in this local market and watched with interest how they brought a a new model, a new AVOD model to market that was built on the premise of lower ad loads, um, certainly great technology in terms of frequency capping and making sure that the ad experience was um, exceptional. So we can't, we, we learned a lot from that in terms of what we wanted to do from a streaming perspective. And the, probably the, the critical piece around the size of the audience and how we approach it. Um, and as you say, we, we'd made the decision before um, Netflix went down the commercial model that they have. But critically for any ad product that we've built, uh, whether it be pre-rolls on VOD or whether it be a, a new linear channel across um, subscription TV, it was always done on the premise of what, what audience have we got to sell? Uh, and is that audience scalable enough to make a difference for advertisers? So... Um, working with um, Julian Ogren and um, Ale Herbert Burns uh, on the binge side, from the advertising perspective, it was always about if we're going to move forward with this, we've got to move forward with sufficient scale to start with uh, and make sure we deliver um, from an advertising perspective. And I think at that lower ad load of four minutes an hour and at the lower price point, the value equation from a customer perspective was probably fairly equitable and yep. at the same time as we introduced um, advertising to the binge customer base they're also kind of gifted HD and other value elements and that was the the key point working collectively with the with the binge team was customer experience has got to be exceptional customer value equation has got to be there and from our side the ad, ad experience has got to be exceptional as well. Did you did you find I, I guess well maybe it's too early to say but uh, obviously you're introducing it to people who have existing um, existing subscriptions at that rate have you found there's been much movement there uh, in terms of people then either upgrading or I guess just standing still on on the the um, the plan that they've already got 
Yeah, probably a bit too early um, t- to tell, um, but certainly through the, um, and we do a lot of this through Fox Test, through all the testing we've done um, with customer customers on probably what they were willing to accept. Um, it certainly gave us the confidence to move forward that the potential downside would be minimal um, and the upside on advertising revenue would be well worth that that model. And even going back to some of the, the early comms that we sent out to customers in terms of briefing on, on what was going to change and talking about the introduction of HD um, to their plan, there, there, there was kind of little that came back for, from that that gave us um, any concern. Um, hence, we kind of we pushed forward and launched. And then, you know, at the top there, reference some of those um, sort of more premium brands that signed on um, for the launch. What, what was the what was the process in that? Was it, you know, uh, did you did you go to market and say, look, we're receiving expressions of interest? Who wants to come forward? Were they clambering to get on board, or what? What was that like? Well, I mean, I've, I've got, to, and I've said this publicly before. I, I've never seen an advertiser product leave our business and be sold um, as quickly. I mean, um, unfortunately, you, you missed the upfronts. We were talking about that early, but um, kind of Nev was on stage, the executive director of sales, um, and I think he even had his phone number up on one of the screens at Alliance. And I mean, that, that was a moment in itself, um, but the interest from the upfront into a handful of kind of um, agency and client conversations, I mean, we had the... We had the break at Christmas and we were back for a couple of weeks um, realistically after Australia Day and it was sold out. Um, yeah. And I think the, the team, and it's challenging for any sales organisation, and we kind of pushed through just over 20 partners. So we could have sold 40 in the same time period. But going back to my point before, we were very reticent not to push it too far. Um, having watched what had happened with previous launches to make sure that we delivered delivered an audience for clients. So that was that was always going to be the plan. And, w- and what's that outlook looking like, I guess, for the rest of the year? Um, can you run us through that a little bit? Yeah, um, on, on bins um, specifically. Um, yeah. The, um, certainly th- those advertising partners on, we're, we're confident, but um, let's get to the end of their campaign p- period and make sure we deliver um, from their perspective, and I think if we do that, there'll certainly be repeat um, investment from there. And I'm pretty confident, knowing um, the feedback we've had, certainly um, when we launched it and when we announced it, and even the dialogue that's um, some of it being played out um, in the press. Some of it was at the future of TV. Um, there's a lot of confidence in the way we've gone about it, and therefore there's a lot of commitment to move forward at scale, um, and by scale, I mean in, in revenue terms from agency and other clients that want to be on board because they'll they'll see the success of the um, the launch phase. And of course, um, it kind of lined up very well with the launch of uh, the new season of Succession, which I think would would probably have the eyeballs of just about everyone in this uh, this industry that we're in at the moment. Was there any any planning there? <laughs> oh, I mean, sometimes. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you you make luck, and sometimes they kind of just it happens for you. I think uh, sometimes you work you work hard enough, you practice hard enough at things that these things sometimes tend to align. And you're right, it aligned perfectly. And and you mentioned um, the the future of TV advertising event 
a few weeks ago. Obviously, a lot of uh, different talking points and conversation that have come out of that since then. Um, I know it was announced on the day, but there was an article, I believe, yesterday in the AFR talking about the the launch of of Voz with um, Doug Pfeiffer. Um, ha- has there been any, I guess, concrete decision made in in terms of your thinking and your direction around um, your participation in Voz uh, at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we're we're still looking to move forward um, with Ostam and with Doug on the the Voz journey. From our perspective, I mean, it, as, as as I said, it, it's taken us a little bit longer to get Ko integrated into VPM, which is the the video video player piece, and that's really the got to tick that box before you can move into the Voz journey. And certainly, from both um, Doug's perspective and and mine, that's probably taken us too long. Um, yeah, but we're dealing with. KO um, sports streaming platform. There isn't one like it globally. 50 plus sports, multiple concurrent streams running each weekend. It, it was complex to, um, to get to that point, but we're, we're past that milestone now. Um, it's, uh, we're seeing VPM data on KO. It's pretty aligned to what we see um, internally. So now we've actually got the the ticket to move forward into Voz. So um, we're working on timelines with Doug and the team right now. But yeah, we're on that journey and not too far away. Yeah, and, and of course you kind of mentioned it a little bit there, but there was there were those reports in in the Sydney Morning Herald a few weeks ago about sort of duplication. Is that is that sort of what you're referring to there? No, I mean that's the the, the KO piece and getting that on on VPM um, was the the first step, and that's allowing us to kind of move into Voz. I mean we've. We're working with Doug to rapidly um, expand the Oztam panel moving forward. Um, yep. And it's it's probably everything's easy in hindsight, but when, when we've got 2,000 homes measuring, I suppose, the, the growth and speed of growth with Foxtel and we've got a million set-top boxes, probably makes sense to be working a lot closer on that moving forward to be as up to date as we possibly can with the quantum growth that Foxtel's gone through. So um, Doug and I are, are cracking that right now. Yeah. So uh, I guess moving forward, you, you say you've got a million set top boxes. The number of total subscriptions, the aim is to reach the, the 5 million mark across the total Foxtel ecosystem um, fairly soon, I guess. I think that number is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, around, around the 4.5 million mark just now. Um, what's the sort of value proposition that you see aside from the the ad product that you sort of see Foxtel's products having right now against maybe some of its competitors? Yeah, my, the, the world is, from a television perspective, is is moving to um, streaming infrastructure. Um, I, I mentioned Tubi earlier. Um, you're watching what Tubi is doing quarter in, quarter out um, in the US, kind of in in excess now of 250 million um, US dollars a quarter. It's starting to outstrip um, Fox on the traditional TV side of the business. So you're seeing examples like that. Hulu's been there before. So when when I think about the, the overall destination for the Foxtel group, it's one that's embedded in streaming uh, and streaming first. We'll it's not long to, to look back kind of three or four years ago and probably under 10% of Foxtel's customers were streaming customers. That number's just under 70% now. So it's gone through 
um, quantum change and, and quantum acceleration. And the, the streaming capability, I think, just gives you enormous flexibility and agility when it comes to data, when it comes to managing customers and communicating, communicating to customers in a digital-centric manner. Um, and the, the data on different pieces of content, whether it be Binge or whether it be kind of KO, um, is kind of is extensive and clearly allows you to make probably much sharper, faster and more informed business decisions than you ever would have done before. Yeah, and obviously, you know, that is moving in uh, in a very particular uh, direction and we can see that through the quarterly results. Um, I guess the growth of the different platforms compared to the, the set-top box. Do you, do you see, I guess, is do you foresee a world where, you know, Foxtel becomes an exclusively streaming streaming service or company, I should say? I think we, if you look at the destination we're on, it's kind of highly likely um, in the future. I mean, you look at the set-top boxes now, they're all IP enabled. Um, it wasn't long ago talking about um, the objective to be 100% digital. Um, arguably, we're already there um, as a business in terms of the way the content is distributed through the set-top boxes and through various streaming devices across all of our brands and platforms. So um, <clears throat> streaming-led destination is clearly where we're, where we're heading. And what, what do you see, uh, obviously, KO, uh, you've got the two, the two summer codes, which... Um, Again, looking at those numbers, definitely drive subscriptions up in the in the winter quarters. Um, I guess compared to the summer quarters, and that's both of those locked in for quite significant long term deals now. Um, I guess on the the binge side of things, it's been around a little uh, less long as care. What what are you sort of seeing as the from from your perspective, the driving factors of those business in in terms of continuing that growth? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair it's a fair question, uh, and you're right on the assumption around kind of seasons. I mean, streaming led platforms are, by their definition, um, it's a pause and play model, depending what you're what you're into, uh, and therefore, certainly from an entertainment perspective, you are continually reliant on those big shows, those big ticket items that are. Um, advertised and market to the customer base, whether that's directly or whether that's through um, outdoor or major kind of um, major services, kind of TV content being pushed out there. Like the, the peaks you get from those kind of content, I think the, the critical piece is continually having enough of those hits to keep yep. the customers in there um, long. And, that, and that's the battle with the, the entertainment um, streaming landscape, which is is highly competitive. To your point, you, you called out the the land grab we've got on sports content. So there's an increasingly level of kind of confidence around the core seasons and the core codes there to hold those customers in um, ongoing. And, and I guess um, on sports specifically. Um, how, how do you see, you know, we mentioned the AFL there, which was a, a massive um, a massive moment for both Seven and for Foxtel last year, securing those rights, um, I guess, as I said, for the foreseeable future. Um, how, how do you sort of identify the different opportunities, for example, that Foxtel offers clients and customers um, through its coverage, I guess, in comparison to maybe what Seven would put on their free-to-air? I mean, the... 
the obvious starting point is we don't run ads in live play. Therefore, we've got to be way more creative um, with the brands, um, with the advertisers and the agencies we work through. Uh, and whether that be through technology solutions on KO, whether that be potentially new shows that we might kind of create on KO or across the Fox Sports platform, it just forces us to be um, probably we've got to be more innovative on the way we get those brands messages across our sports platform because, uh, and I go back to where we were at the start, like we've got paying customers and therefore there's a slightly different relationship that we've got with them when it comes to advertising. So we've got to weave those messages into the telecast um, probably um, in a more, I would say kind of tidy, but certainly seamless fashion. Um, and and, and you, you did mention before the the I guess in the entertainment sector how how competitive things have been recently. Um, we we mentioned Succession, The Last of Us, which was incredibly successful, and then also um, House of the Dragon, which we saw figures break the one million mark um, at the at the end of last year. Um, of course, there's been reports in recent weeks. Do you mind just clearing up? I guess any confusion over um, the launch of you know, it's been globally reported HBO Max. That does not uh, impact the the local deal with Warner Brothers Discovery. Is that is that right in terms of the content deal there? Probably not one for me to go to on this, unfortunately, Callum. All good. <laughs> um, and then uh, I guess I guess more uh, more generally with with the um, the streaming environment. Do you think commercially it's viable? For, I mean, we've obviously got a very crowded. Um, crowded ecosystem here. Do you think it's viable that they can all survive or do you think at some point um, there's going to have to be some sort of co consolidation? What's your outlook on that front? Yeah, I, mean, I think um, kind of Patrick's spoken about this um, previously that I think uh, like in, in all of these fast-growing categories, um, some consolidation is inevitable moving forward. Uh, I do still think in this in the Australian market there's probably there's still more players to come, um, a, a blend of AVOD and SVOD platforms. And I, I look at, um, again, I, I go back to the Tubi example often. Um, it's been here in, for a couple of years with a, started with a few hundred thousand subscribers and kind of is sailing kind of well beyond that tenfold now. So it shows if the, firstly, if the content's there, the customer experience and the technology um, is there. Um, that the customers will come if the value equation is correct. And whether that's a, a blend of ads and subscriptions, whether that's ads only, um, there's still a lot more growth to come in that sector, I think. So we're probably a, a while away from consolidation yet. But like in a lot of these fast-growing markets, as I said, kind of there's a level of inevitability there at some stage. It's... Uh... It's a lot to compete for, but uh, it seems like the company's uh, in, in good shape at the moment. So, Mark, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Absolute pleasure, Kevin. Good to chat. And that is all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to the Umbrella Cast. Throw us a follow or subscribe if you're enjoying our podcast content. We'll be back tomorrow on the evening Mumbo feed and head to mumbrella.com.au to keep on top of everything that's happening in Australia's media and marketing industries. 
Thanks again to Chris and Mark for joining us today. And Kalila, thanks again. I'll be away for the next few weeks, so hope you listeners enjoy a return to the hosting seat for our editorial director, Damien Francis. See you next week.